welcome to another episode of Two Lips, One Mic. I'm Anna. And I'm Pushy. Gosh, it's been like three months since we've recorded last. God. Why have we, what's our excuse for not recording in such a long time? <laughs> Life has happened in a big way for both of us. Um, last time we were recording, we both were alluding to the fact that we just quit our jobs. <laughs> so three months on. Oh my um, gosh, yeah. yeah. That was a long time ago. Yeah. So where are we both at? <laughs> well, I guess that kind of segues well into some of the things we want to talk about today. So um, one of the things that I've actually gotten a lot of um, questions about since was about the quitting of the jobs um, and how about how we went about it and why it's still seen to be quite like a big decision I Mm. suppose um but for the both of us I think we've both it's just become not as big a deal as what it used to be or is to some other people yeah it's a real millennial cliche but one that's warranted um we've both moved a number of times since we left uh uni and I think I'm all the better for it Well, it's interesting because before we were just talking about um, this episode on The Cut on Tuesdays, which was talking about quitting and the psychology behind quitting, like what drives people to quit their jobs and also the psychology of those who are left behind and their questioning about like, why, where am I going with my career? Like, Mm. should I be quitting? Should I be doing something else? And I thought that was just really um, relatable Mm. um, to both of our decisions, I suppose, to quit our respective jobs. But one of the things I took away from that episode was um, one of the people, she was a journalist and she was interviewed, and it was actually her quitting um, was a means of her advancing in her career. So she loved working at The Cut, but she wasn't doing what she had always wanted to do, which was to be a features writer. Mm. And so it actually took her taking a year off and doing another thing to then get her to get the dream job that she'd always wanted. You know, that runs really counterintuitive to a lot of the ways that people think about work. Um, I know that when I was making the decision to quit my job that one of my co-workers actually remarked that I was committing career suicide and I think that is often thought to be the case, especially when you're quitting your job without any real plan of what's next. See, I have a complete different story and I'm so grateful I don't work with your asshole of a colleague. <laughs> but um, when I, so a few years ago when I was very, very ill and mm-hmm. I was having a, a difficult conversation with my manager at that time saying, um, look, I'm probably going to quit the job that I just accepted as well. So I was quitting a current job to go into another job, which was going to be a pay rise and like, um, you know, a responsibility rise and everything rise. And I said to her, like, very tearfully, I was like, this is career suicide. Like, I can't Mm. believe I'm doing this. And she was actually the one who was like, no, it's not. You've got your long career ahead of you. Like, this is... That's incredible. Well, because it's the truth. Like, I think people like your colleague who are so insular, like, Mm. it's kind of sad, actually. Um, Yeah, I mean, a lot of that way of thinking, I think, is really fear-driven. You know, being really insecure about what you do and who you are without your work. And I think you even expressed a struggle you had when you were out of work, um, you know, going into those social situations Mm. and people posing the question to you like, what do you do or, you know, what are you about? And finding it really difficult to answer that question when you weren't actually working because people like us, people who are quite career-oriented and quite, you know, ambitious and independent often do define ourselves by the work that we do. 
But I think if you're, you've got the luxury and the privilege of being able to take time out from your job, I think it's the most beneficial thing that you mm. can do because it gives you more direction. It gives you that space and time away from like the day-to-day, you know, mundaneness of doing a proper job mm. um, to actually think, what do I want to do? Mm. And for me, going back to my example there, I quit my job um, and I had to because of health reasons. So I feel like that was what buoyed me a bit more because I was like, well, I have something to focus on, which is getting well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the primary concern here. But it actually did give me the space to sort of think about what I wanted to do next in my career because mm. I was still pretty junior at that point in time. Um And I hadn't established as much. So I didn't feel like I had very much to lose. Mm. But thinking back of it now, I would happily quit my job now again. Mm. And I I did a couple of months ago to do, to take that risk and to take the challenge to do something completely different. Mm. And um, it's really liberating. I think I had a recent conversation with someone who used to be um, one of my colleagues and he was saying that he's on a recruitment uh, panel now for um, hiring lawyers and he was saying one thing he struggles with with our generation, millennials, he's Gen X, um, is the fact that we do frequently not work in places for a very long time. So, for mm. instance, if you look at my resume, I've probably got, you know, probably two years in one place. Uh, I did two years in another place and I'm currently in a fixed term for 12 months which I think is a fucking long time. It mm. feels like, yeah, three months in, it feels long. So but when you <laughs> compare it to people of this person's generation, that's actually really quite uncommon. Like I think my parents, for the most part, spent at least five years in any given job and some people in our parents' generation have only ever worked the one job and worked their way up. I totally get that, but I think this is why I tried to explain to him as well because at the he is on the recruitment panels, right? So he's the one selecting mm. who gets to be interviewed. Um, and I was trying to say, look, one thing you probably should understand about our generation is that work is not as stable as what it used to be. Like our parents were probably going out and getting jobs in the 80s when, yeah, notably there was a recession, but I do know other people who, um, I think one of my close friends was saying the partner of her firm went straight from university into a law firm and he's been there for decades Mm. he's been there since the 80s and so worked his way up and there's that sense of loyalty both by the employee but also by the employer Mm. whereas here we're talking about a mass casualized workforce we're talking about short-term contracts like you know in my last job I was on probably about four to five different short-term contracts and I was certainly doing the work that justified me being on the long-term contract or an ongoing job, but it, that's just the, the way of the land now. Mm. And so there's the casualization factor and also the fact that I do feel a part of us being like, you know, so-called entitled millennials is that we know our rights. Like I'll never forget the time where I was a junior lawyer and one of um, my colleagues was saying like, you know, the thing about Article Clark these days is that they, they, um, they think they have all these rights to, like, proper working <laughs> hours and stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's my entitlement. Yeah, isn't that something we should be celebrating? Yeah. <laughs> that they know their rights and they advocate for them? But then you have this attitude and they're just like, what the hell, these entitled millennials working eight mm. hours a day instead of, like, 14. <laughs> and so it's, it's that as well. So I think um, I was really trying to hammer home the fact that we are less likely to put up with being bullied or harassed or anything mm. because... I think our generation's pretty good at realising now that work is not life Mm. and we're moving away from that because we've seen it with our parents' generation who, like, 
toiled their asses off and in many cases they were made redundant anyway like I know mm. heaps of people who worked for like Toyota or Ford their entire lives and gave their lives to that only to be made redundant in their 50s and like good luck getting a job in the, mo- the dying automotive industry when you're in your 50s mm. and so I think those are the factors that contribute to like me thinking quitting is not career suicide in my view it's actually been a really effective way of me advancing and getting career um like better career options and also getting pay rises well it's funny because um in my previous job I used to be on interview panels and I remember that when I would be sifting through the different resumes that we'd be getting that I was often drawn to those resumes where I did notice a gap Mm. because I was like wow like in my view, and again, this is me being a product of my millennial generation, I'm like, wow, that takes courage. You know, someone's actually taken a break out of their career, especially in such a sort of conservative profession like mm. law. Um, I want to know more about this person. I want to know what they did and what else they're going to bring to the table because of that experience. But often they do really cool things. Like I think of my colleagues, they've all had very interesting careers mm. before they've ended up like wherever we happen to be. I don't think the only people I do know who've been, you know, steadily in the same job for decades are my like older colleagues mm. who I do deeply respect as well, but they've got other commitments and other priorities. Whereas I guess for young lawyers, which is what we're looking at now, um, you know, it's, it's taking that risk. Like we mm. can take the calculated risk because we're in a privileged position, especially now that we're a couple of years out. Mm. So I guess my question is, what are some of your tips for people who may be considering quitting? Like I know a lot of people who are adversely, like their mental health is so adversely affected by their workplace dynamics, mm. which I think is something that perhaps you experienced in your life. Um, what would you recommend to those people who are sort of on the pinnacle? Well, like you said, quitting is a luxury. Um, some people simply can't afford to do it, whether it's for financial reasons or mental health reasons or whatever else the case may be. They might have responsibilities outside of work that don't afford them that luxury. But if they're people in situations like ours, so people that are, you know, a couple of years out of university, um, have had some experience in the workforce, have developed some level of knowledge and expertise and are financially able to do it, um, I guess I would just say to you, What's going to help you sleep at night? Yeah, um, 100%. You know, you can point to all these different variables that you can take into account. You can make your pros and cons lists and all those things are really good to do. But at the end of the day, you know, who are you? What are you out there to do? And is your current situation facilitating that? And if the answer to that is no or you don't know, then it's probably time to reevaluate and actually take the time to do that because – it's so easy, you know, especially when you're working a full-time job to just go through the motions, you know, day by day and Mm. not really sit with yourself and take that time to answer those big questions. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing because even though I'm someone that I think is quite introspective and quite reflective and, you know, always is questioning things, um, I still need that time to get away from my work just to really, yeah, figure out what it is that I want to do. And, if I don't do it now, I'm of the view that I'm going to end up doing it, you know, 10 years from now, and then I might have all these other obligations that go by the wayside and make things a lot more difficult for me. Yeah, you'll have three screaming kids hanging off your tit. Yeah, and that makes it a lot harder, whereas now, like you said, we have the privilege where we don't have those obligations, so why the hell not? 
I guess for me, my um, lesson would be your health is a priority, mm. which is something I never used to prioritize yeah. very much. But now that I'm a bit old, and I'm seeing it with like younger lawyers as well, who are really just, um, I see myself in them. It's so interesting watching mm. people I work with who um, are, would kill themselves for their jobs, um, work themselves into such, like, I, you know, there are people I've been working with who, um, have been really ill because they were so burnt out. And I'm just like, yep, I've been there and I'm not doing that again. Well, that's what it took for both of us. I, I think, know. Right? And that's why I'm like, you know, I, I'm not going to lecture people about it, but mm. I'm also just going to be like, well, you know, you got to take care of yourself because mm. um, your job is, it, if you die tomorrow, your job is not going to care. Mm. Like the world will move on without you, mm. but there's only one you. And you have to take care of you mm-hmm. because your employer is not going to do it. Um, and I guess the other thing is don't ever feel like you are completely trapped in a job, mm-hmm. which is something that I felt very much when I was doing like some jobs um, that will be nameless. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I think it's really easy in the day to day to feel really trapped by your job. And I can very easily see how, people feel depressed and start mm. feeling suicidal because it's it is your whole life almost like eight hours of your day if you don't have anything outside of that job and your job's making you miserable um you may feel like you're trapped and that there's no choice um and I don't want people to ever feel like that because mm. like I, going back to point one your job does not exist like you are not your job Mm. like you don't exist solely for the job you've got a whole existence outside of your job and there will be other jobs you can do too um and I know that's so privileged coming from where I am but you know when I quit my job I was only a year and a half post admission Mm. so by your colleague standards probably career suicide Mm. but I'm happy I spoke to my manager who was really understanding about it and she's a lot older than your colleague too and has a lot more life experience and isn't like a privileged brat so, you know, <laughs> she, um, I think I'm really lucky I had people like her who understand and my parents and like friends mm. and family as well. So it's about connecting yourself with that network before you decide to take the leap, I think as well. Yeah. And because, listen to what they say. I mean, imagine if you're surrounded by colleagues, family and friends that are feeding those insecurities oh, that yeah. you already have. About I wouldn't quitting. have quit. I, I don't yeah, think I would have. Me too. I think those support networks were life-saving to be perfectly honest I Mm. mean um I had it when I was in Darwin when you know I had friends including you that were on like a rotating roster for me like during the week I would Mm. call in and check in and um I think if I didn't have that that yeah I would be in a really really dark place well you were already in the dark place well even darker so (laughs) maybe I wouldn't even be here like quite honestly you know um yeah those support networks are crucial so again I think we were really privileged in that respect um Mm. we did have supports and structures in place that a lot of people don't have but if you do have those supports and structures and you are miserable in your job then it's definitely something worth reevaluating because nothing is worth you know costing your health really You know, if anything, if anyone here wants to reach out to either of us to talk about these experiences Mm. about quitting, um, just because I've had a few people ask me about this, and if this conversation makes you feel less alone in terms of everyone's doing Mm. it, I mean, aside from us, like, we know of how many other people have just Mm. quit their jobs, heaps, Mm. and there's always a world beyond your job. 
Yeah. And if anything, it makes space for the opportunities to then come by because that's how I found mm. um, a job that I was really deeply passionate about. Mm. Well, we both wouldn't be where we're at had we not made those decisions to quit our jobs. Yeah, you're richer. <laughs> for the time being. Actually, I'm richer too. <laughs> and it's about finding somewhere that actually values you. Like, I think yeah. that's the thing. Like, a lot of the times I've actually quit in recent times is because I wasn't getting pay rises despite going mm. very far and beyond to justify why I deserved it. Mm. And, you know, there was issues with pay equity and stuff too. And I'll, it just got to the point where I don't know if I was just being arrogant, but I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, I'm just mm. going to leave and go somewhere that actually can give me what I think I'm worth. Mm. But that takes a few years to build up to. So. Yeah. And it's an ongoing process, you know. I still go through cycles where I do question my decision making and that's perfectly normal too. Like, we've all been there and we will continue to be there. But, yeah, I think it's important to know that you're not the only one. You're not alone. taking us from work to life (laughs) our next topic um so it seems to be something in the air but I have been invited to a lot of weddings recently and also yeah I saw your recent insta story how many RSVPs were there on that I think there were three but I've been to like two (laughs) weddings already this year yeah and babies a number of people having babies too yeah which made me realize we're heading towards our 30s so (laughs) some sooner than others so what, um, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I think a good starting point may be this um, article that I read um, that was um, featuring um, Emma Watson, better known as Hermione from the Harry Potter movies. Never actually really knew her that well until she did some indie movie that I became a big fan of. But that's by the by. Um, so recently she did this interview with Vogue Australia. And in it, she spoke to a lot of the insecurities and fears that she feels as she approaches her 30s. So if I bring up the article, um, there was a particular paragraph that really um, resonated with me. Um, So it says here, What are Emma Watson's dreams? She turns 30 in April and describes 2019 as having been tough because she had all these ideas about what her life was supposed to look like at this age. I was like, why does everyone make a big fuss about turning 30? This is not a big deal, she shares. Cut to 29 and I'm like, oh my God, I feel so stressed and anxious. And I realise it's because there is suddenly this bloody influx of subliminal messaging around. If you have not built a home, if you do not have a husband, if you do not have a baby and you are turning 30 and you're not in some incredibly secure, stable place in your career or you're still figuring things out, there's this incredible amount of anxiety. That's like the trifecta of things. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about how, so we both pride ourselves on being like independent feminist Mm. women who, um, you know, have carved our own careers and our own sort of identity in the world, I hope. Why is it that this 30 point is bothering us? Like I found myself berating Mm. myself over this too because – I'm just like, you know, run your own race. Like, you know, you know how you've got like the one side of your brain that's very much the rational side. Mm. And then there's what I think Emma Watson's describing, which is that societal pressure that then manifests in like the emotional side, which is like the whiny, like, why haven't I got this yet? Why aren't I married? Why don't I have kids? Blah, 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 blah. You know, I think once upon a time, the um, emotional side was subservient to the rational side. And the reason for that was 
even though I was aware of these like societal pressures that condition people to, you know, basically go after this checklist of things that make them an adult, I thought, well, most of the people around me were not in those positions, but I feel like increasingly as the people around me, for example, in a relationship context have, you know, settled into long-term relationships and have moved in with their partners, gotten engaged, gotten married, had children. It just feels a lot less abstract to me now. Yeah. And so the pressure has really heightened for me. I think that's definitely true. Um, But for me, it's been the opposite in the sense that I think my wider friendship circle, Mm -hmm. so not my close, my inner closest friends, but beyond that, they have all done it. And so every now and then when I'm like at a wedding or I'm at like something, an engagement party or whatever, that's when I'm reminded about what reality, in quote marks, is like. Whereas my closest friends, we're all sort of in the same circle. I mean, well, I think, you know, one of my really close friends got married just a couple of months ago, um, Mia. and Sid. Oh, God, yeah, I was like, who? <laughs> Both of our Tashi? close friends, actually. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, yeah. But, no, I, I get what you mean. Like, sort of that immediate circle is still sort of um, immune from some of those pressures. But maybe I feel it differently because I am single, but... I'm not just talking about, you know, getting engaged, getting married, get, having children, even just being around in people that are in long-term relationships. Yeah. Like most of my friends are in long-term relationships. Um, and so I specifically carve out time now to spend with my friends that are not in relationships. Not because like there's anything wrong with being in a relationship. Like, you know, I've been in relationships and I've experienced mm. the real positives that come with that. But There is something different in the way you relate to people in relationships, I find, than you do to people that are not in relationships. I think that's true of any of the the various life stages. Like, for instance, Mm. I remember watching some movie that had, like, Adam Driver, the guy from Girls in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, Ben Stiller and, like, some woman. And so, essentially, they all became friends Mm -hmm. with Adam Driver, this hipster dude. Um, and his girlfriend because they were in their 40s and childless and so they had nothing in common with their childbearing friends and Mm. I reckon that will be the next stage yeah like you know you start at the stage um, where you're at which is like all my friends are in long-term relationships Mm -hmm. then you get to the stage where all my friends are (laughs) with children Mm. and so life is very divergent Mm. Um, which scares me because like that means a big transitional phase yeah and inevitably when people go through transformative experiences like that that is going to result in a change in the relationship that you have with that person yeah and I think we've talked a lot about this about how the dynamics change as people get married I don't think I've seen it too much though mostly because none of my friends are married yeah I mean I think we've all had that experience with a friend though who enters into a relationship and then essentially disappears from your, you know, social circle. AKA shitty friends. Well, <laughs> yes. Some would call them shitty friends. Some would call them people that, you know, are also giving priority to another relationship. I would call them shitty friends. <laughs> but I think I've exercised all these people <laughs> out of my life. But, yeah, I mean, or even having children. I mean, you know, literally a child demands so much fucking time and yeah, energy. So that, and but I feel like that's understandable. You don't think it's understandable with a partner, though? No. I mean, you know, you're not only spending increased time with this other person that's significant to you, but their family, usually their friends. So that means less time for you to spend with your family, your friends. No, I don't believe in that. Mostly because I don't conduct my affairs like that either. 
Do you think that's because of the nature of your relationship, though? Because Nick and you have been together since high school. I think that's the nature of me as a person. Like, I Mm. do, I like spending time with my own family and Mm -hmm. my own friends. And there have been heaps of times where my mum's like, oh, where's Nick or whatever. Mm. And genuinely, I just want to spend time with them. I don't need him to be there. It's actually more of a hindrance because of the language barrier and stuff. And, you know, often I just want to speak to them Mm -hmm. and not have him around. And same with friends. Like sometimes you, like, you know, there are things I'd say to you that I wouldn't want to, like I I wouldn't say to him, Mm. particularly about work and career and stuff where it's like, you know, he's a relatability factor. Yeah. And, you know, he's not going to be able to understand it on the same level as someone who's actually going through it or whatever. And so I do, I, I still have very big distinctions between that. No, and I think that's how I conduct myself as well, but... I think we're in the minority. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Whenever I raise this issue, like whenever I'm complaining about a friend that I think is, you know, neglecting our friendship in favour of like a partner, for example, people will come back and say to me what I just said to you. Well, listen, now they've got this other person that's significant to them and that person also comes with their family and their friends and the, you know, obligations associated with that. And I'm like, yeah, but if you prioritise the friendship or if it's valuable to you, you're going to make sure that you – don't make your friends feel like they're like second, second. choice. Well, yeah, I I think yeah, you're right. The way that I do it is probably very unusual, but like I'll always put my family before his family, mm. and um, because they're my family. Yeah, like you're only born with them. Like you're born from them. Yeah, and so why would you neglect them unless you really hate them? But I don't. Mm. So you know, there's no reason to do that. Same with friends. Like mm. you choose your friends. You have to work for your friendships, you know, like they don't just organically Mm. exist there. You can't just neglect them and expect people to continue wanting to be your friend if you don't talk to them for years. Unless you happen to be friends with people that are also neglectful of the relationship. Maybe we're using the wrong inflammatory language. I wonder what sort of response we'll get from this. Yeah, because I feel like, you know, we've often spoken about how the guys in our lives conduct their friendships so differently to the girls in our lives. But that works for them. Yeah, because the expectations are shared expectations. One person isn't wanting or needing more from the other. Yeah. But I guess the issue arises when that's not the case, when it is that, you know, one person has the expectation that you'll be checking in with them every week and then the other person's only checking in every month. That is going to cause friction. Mm. So, Which is probably why I don't have many guy friends left in my life because um, they didn't have that sort of investment or we don't have that shared view. Mm. And secondly, because a lot of them are now in very committed relationships and mm. so a lot of their time is spent on their partners and stuff and I think it's a sad sort of natural progression of things. Mm. I mean, going back to the topic at hand, so, you know, broaching our 30s and, like, dealing with these pressures around career, relationships and the like, what's the answer to that? In terms of moving forward? Yeah, how, for example, like, from my perspective, I'm asking for free therapy here, but, you know, (laughs) um, like, by and large, I've come to a position where I'm actually quite content with my single status, but I do have my moments where I do, you know, long for that or think oh why am I not in a long-term relationship why am I not living with my partner like how do you engage with those insecurities when they come at you because they're all around you yeah I think it's harder for you than it probably is for me and whatever insecurities I have I don't actually think I feel any right now but I will (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm jealous. Um, <laughs> and that's because, again, it's it's who you surround yourself with. Yeah. And so, like, uh, let me speak from my example, for instance. Mm. I think I'm meant to be insecure about the fact that I'm not married. I'm not sure. I feel like that's, like, the next logical progression. Like, a lot of people have seen, like, Nick and I have been in a relationship for, like, 12 years, and so that's mm-hmm. sort of natural. But the reason why I don't feel that is because my family, for instance, they don't care and they don't mm. bang on about it. Um, and because, and strangely for an ethnic family, like because they don't care about it, they then convey that on to all their friends who keep asking them about it. And so I'm immune from that. Right. And then my friends, none of my very close friendship circle are married. And some of them are like, still single actually Mm. so case in point (laughs) no but other people too and so they're and focusing on something else that's about them like Mm. like individual pursuits so for instance we've got friends who are overseas like finding themselves we've got you who are putting your job soon to you know Mm. find what you want to do and so that makes it really um okay in my mind to run my own race Mm. and do what I think is is right for me but um with the relationship stuff, then maybe for, uh, for you it is actually immersing yourself around more of those people mm. who are okay with it. Like not people, and I'm not saying any of your friends are probably like this, but people who are pining desperately for mm. their Prince Charming, just people who are just genuinely happy being them. And if it happens, it will happen. Yeah. And you know what? A lot of this pressure, I mean, yes, it's socially conditioned and the people around you feed it. But a lot of the time it's so deeply internalised that exactly. you it's might... Good. Social conditioning, it's like what Emma Watson was saying. Yeah, it's like, you know, you might have the structures in place that you just articulated. Your family might be fine with your situation, your friends might be fine, your colleagues might be fine, but you somehow don't feel fine. Mm. And, yeah, that kind of almost, I think, begs deeper introspection. Like, why are you insecure about this? Why are you fearful about this? What do you think it says about you? And I know that through, like, therapy. Like, Mm. one of the things that I've definitely been able to touch on is that a lot of these insecurities and these fears comes from just low self-esteem and self-worth. It's 30 years of self-conditioning, though, as well. Yeah. How do you, yeah, like, Like TV. You watch TV, it's the logical progression to do X, Y, Z. And I think maybe I got it out of my system early in my early 20s, mostly with buying houses. Mm. like that's that's probably my more bigger insecurity because right. it's sort of a reflection on something beyond like to me buying a house is not like marriage in the sense that you can just accidentally walk into a marriage <laughs> but to buy a house actually requires dedication commitment and discipline mm. um in my view anyway like to make a 20 percent deposit mm-hmm. that's a lot of hard work mm-hmm. and so for me i think that's probably where my insecurity sits mm. still um don't know how i'd cure that mm. I mean I and the other thing is I'm around people who are homeowners but like I don't feel that pressure either because I think my close friendship circle are so um good about it like mm. I never even hear them talk about it. I think the last time I heard about it was from this like very peripheral friend who was like bragging about it in our early 20s right and, um that was probably the only time that I felt like whoa feel yeah, a bit right. shit about myself but no since then no I mean I've had plenty of friends at quiet houses and haven't really heard them talk about it Mm. so I think surrounding yourself with the right people Mm. and also getting to the root of why you feel the way you do yeah are probably the two ways of mitigating that because I think like I said by and large for most of the time I'm really secure in who I am yeah it's just these like really random moments 
usually not triggered by anything. Like, you know, it might be a Sunday night. Yeah. And, like, I'm just getting settled for the start of the work week. And then all of a sudden I'm like, hmm, be nice to have someone here to, you know, binge, like, some stupid show on Netflix with. And then it's just like, yeah, it's fleeting, but it's there. You can still do that with your friends or your single friends. You can, but I don't know. It's it's much easier to do if someone's already there, especially if, like, you've got a partner that you live with. Yeah. But, again, it's But you wouldn't be living with whatever partner for... For a while anyway. Yeah, exactly right. And also, I really love living on my own. Exactly. <laughs> if I'm perfectly honest, there are lots of perks attached to it. So, yeah, the moments are real fleeting. But, yeah, I think it's about getting that perspective in those moments that, you know what, these are normal feelings to have, especially when they're socially conditioned in the way they have been. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, support yourself with the right people and get to the root cause of why you feel the way you do. And then mm-hmm. it will all pass. been a really long time since we've had the chance and time to do recommendations so what is on your list so I'm going to do what you were planning to do so I'm going to go to what's most immediate Mm. um so we've spent the weekend away in bright which has been that could be the recommendation yeah yes oh my god yes get away from wherever you're based and just fucking get back with nature like that's I'm, what you can hear the birds in the background yeah sorry for the noise but this is nature um we are at one with nature that's right beautiful. now um yeah <laughs> let's recommend that a weekend away with your friends in bright or somewhere that just makes you feel at home it's like sufficiently far away from home and yeah. work yeah that it makes you feel sort of rested and recharged to you know get back into work so, yeah, thank you for that. Recommendation one, unexpected. Um, recommendation two is that because we've been spending the weekend away in Bright, we've been spending a lot of time reading and mm-hmm. listening to podcasts. And the book that I'm currently reading is one that's been sitting on my bookshelf for I don't even know how long. Um, it's called Choice Words. And it's essentially an anthology of um, stories about women that have experienced abortion in some way Mm. so whether that means because they've personally undergone an abortion or because they've been involved in campaigning against um restrictive and repression abortion law reform um and yeah it's just been it's a really easy read um and it really just brings home like how much progress we've actually made when it comes to that space. I remember um, making the recommendation for you to buy it because we both bought it at the same time yeah. and that was right after what had happened in Alabama, which we talked about yes. in one of our earlier episodes. Yes. And I just think it is such a refreshing reminder, especially for people who are listening to this in Victoria, mm. about the progress that happened not that long ago. 2008 was when I think the yeah. abortion law reform bill was finally um, – you know, in place. And um, before then, it all relied on common law Mm. and having to prove to your doctor the reasons why um, your mental health, physical or mental health, would be affected by proceeding with the pregnancy, which is a horrible onus to put on someone who may be there due to, you know, whatever circumstances they are. Mm. They don't want to be pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, no, I'm still working my way through that. I'm two-thirds of the way through. Um, and a lot of the women featured in it are women that I really respect. So, you know, Jane Caro has a chapter, uh, Anne Summers has a chapter, Clementine Ford has a chapter, 
So if you just want to read about women doing incredible things and having incredible experiences and just sort of, you know, avoiding becoming complacent about some of the privileges really that we have. I mean, yes, it's a right and so it should be, but it wasn't for a really long time. Mm. So um, it really gives you perspective on that. So that would be definitely one recommendation. Um, And the last recommendation I'd want to give is um, a book that I was harping on about to you and many other people in my life um, called Mr. Emotionally Unavailable (laughs) and The Fallback Girl. And I'm not going to (laughs) go into too much detail about this, um, but essentially it's a book by Natalie Liu, I think that's her name, Um, and she's the author of the Baggage Reclaim blog, which is essentially just a blog on, like, life, relationships, career, all the rest of it. Um, And this book in particular is centred on relationships um, between, like, heterosexual relationships between men that happen to be emotionally unavailable and women that um, enter those relationships. So, yeah, personally identified a lot with that book. It was 400-odd pages, and I reckon I finished it in, like, less than a week. So if you're someone that's experiencing that or someone that's curious about it, have a read. <laughs> what about you? Um, I will only offer one recommendation this week because I think that those are very excellent recommendations, <laughs> especially the bright one because we're enjoying the fruits of that labour. Um, I'm going to recommend a young adult book called The Surprising Power of a Good Dumpling by uh, Wei Chin. And um, I didn't expect it to be as good as what it was because Mm. it's young adult. And I was like, oh, but I want to support like um, Asian Australian authors. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's mostly the reason I bought it. But the story is about a protagonist called Anna Chu, who um, essentially is the eldest daughter, um, you know, very typical sort of migrant upbringing in the sense that dad owns a restaurant, it's working crazy hours and mum, has been in bed for a very long time and we later learn out that she's got some pretty severe depression which then manifests into quite a severe psychosis as well and I just think it's such a beautifully written book that sort of it marries up all these themes that were never really explored when I was a teenager um, of things such as mental health mental health in Asian families Mm. um, mental health like generally because the the protagonist's love interest um, also reveals that he was suicidal. He attempted suicide. And so um, it's just... Those very... are really mature themes for I a know, young but, adult book. But if you think about it, we read Kite Runner. <laughs> True. So True. Uh, so this is more like, yeah, no, I, I actually also thought it was very full on for a, a, well, a young lot adult's of book. Young adults are having but experiences going like it. this. Yeah. yeah. So. And I just found the author gave such a good voice to those kids who are essentially acting as their parents' translators, acting Mm. as their parents most of the time because, like, this protagonist was helping her, like, shield her younger brother from knowing the full extent of the mum's condition and, Mm. you know, trying to, like, feeding them all. Like, you know, doing stuff that we would identify with growing up. Yeah. Um, And also I think personally for myself having a parent who has – who had mental illness – um, when I was at that age, I wish I read this because it would have given me a lot more empathy when I was dealing with it. Because when you're a kid, I just remember saying horrible things like, I don't even know why you're sick. Like, I don't yeah. even know what, what are you going to be, be sad about? Just be happy already. Yeah. yeah, which is so thoughtless when you're a kid. Um, yeah. And I wish that 
there was a book of this level of sophistication and nuance mm. um, around when I was that age. But um, it was really beautiful. I think I was getting really emotional during bits of it because it was just told so well. Yeah, that definitely sounds like something I would identify with really strongly. Mm. Uh, because when you're going through those experiences, especially as a child, you feel so alone. I know, and that's the thing. Like, yeah. and in, in the book she thinks she's the only one going through it mm. and it's not until later that she realises one of her classmates, their grandmother also has like mm. severe dementia or some other mental health problem. Um, and that's the thing about mental health. People don't talk about it and so everyone mm. feels like they're the only one going through it which is um, why I think this is great, um, especially for, like, the young Asian Australian community um, who, you know, um, may not culturally be brought up to talk about it. And even in this book, the dad's very much like, no, nah, she's fine, she's fine. Like, even when they're at the psychiatric hospital, he's like, okay, yeah, oh, the problem is she just hasn't taken her meds. She's just watching too much, like, bad TV or um, bad news on the TV. Mm. So, you know, I'll do that and then we, we can take her home, we can take her home. And... You know, it's those moments where it's just like, well, it's, yeah, close to home. Yeah, but sounds like a great read. I'll add it to the list. So thank you so much for joining us again after a very long hiatus. Um, hopefully now that we're sort of heading towards Christmas, actually. Um, we'll need to um, make a concerted our, effort for yeah. the final. Yeah, we need to come up with our words to describe 2019. That'll keep us on track to make sure we record in a timely fashion. It. Yeah. Remember, every year we need to come up with a word to describe the year that's gone. <sighs> I feel like fucked is probably <laughs> the way to go about it now. Um, okay. Well, that's what you guys will have look, to look forward to. Um, but if there's any feedback or anything like that, hit us up. You know where to find us, obviously, because we probably only have like. <laughs> Please give us a five star review. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bye. Bye. <laughs>